This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, September 10th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Elizabeth Warren has a new plan to shake up the boards of publicly traded firms. It would involve giving employees, whether they're shareholders or not, the ability to name members of the company's board. What would this mean for corporate governance and the flexibility of companies trying to respond to changing markets? Cato Institute senior fellow Walter Olson comments. What is the core concern that uh, Elizabeth Warren wants to address with her proposal to essentially alter the composition of boards of uh, large companies, uh, and um, and how does she go about it? Warren is responding to several different critiques of the corporation rather than a single one, and so her plan has a bunch of different planks, which relate sometimes only very loosely to each other. Uh, one of them is that businesses are concerned with profit in the bottom line and reporting to Wall Street and should be more responsive to, quote, stakeholders, a term of art. Uh, Another is that uh, businesses get away with too much by uh, shopping around among the 50 states for corporate charters, Delaware most famously, and you could uh, curtail them if you made the big ones at least, go to the federal government and have only one uh, person to negotiate with or only one government to negotiate with. Um, another part of it um, uh, plays to the feeling that businesses have too much political power and would very sharply curtail their ability to participate in politics. Uh, and yet another one, perhaps the biggest one, um, addresses the idea that uh, the working class or or the em- employed class in the U.S. is not doing as well as they should be out of the economy and so they need structural changes in order to make the economy more rewarding for them um, through an Americanized equivalent, uh, in some ways going even further, of uh, what's best known as co-determination, the the German system in which workers get seats on boards. One of her problems appears to be that companies, uh, large companies, may simply locate in one state and make choices about which state in which they will do business, make that their their primary home. And she would prefer it if uh, very large companies were dealing directly with someone in Washington, D.C. Yes. And of course, we've all heard the debate about how companies decide to look at factories or offices in particular states that they find friendly. But corporate law itself has evolved the way it has because it is state law and corporations can go to Delaware or if they prefer a different state, uh, it might be, you know, um, different state that's optimized for financial institutions or a different state that's optimized for retailers. Go to that state and incorporate under that state's law, which then governs uh, most relevantly their relationship with their own investors, uh, which is an important part of what the companies worry about legally. So she calls this the Accountable Capitalism Act. And uh, when you talk about stakeholders, she is referring to workers and who, you know, there are shareholders are an obvious stakeholder. Well, they, of course, are uh, in there for the ride now, along with a bunch of other undefined groups. Uh, certainly, the workforce, um, very likely the communities of wherever the companies are already employing people or mining resources. Uh, beyond that, quite possibly the customers. And <clears throat> 
we'll see if we get along in this that it's very, very unclear who is being legally obligated to do what. But uh, let's assume for the moment that there's a solid legal obligation here. Uh, not really very well determined uh, who gets to benefit by it. All right. So with respect to workers, would she achieve many of her ends if instead of requiring workers to have uh, be able to choose uh, members of the board simply give those workers stock in the company. Wouldn't that be a less disruptive way to achieve her ends? Whether it would be less disruptive or more disruptive is something you couldn't settle very quickly because, in general, that's also not a route that is tried by uh, modern industrial countries. In fact, they they've tried the workers on boards thing a little bit more than they have compulsory. Uh, employee stock ownership, which has a bunch of different problems. The, um, in particular, you have the, the value of stock. It seems stable when you look at some kinds of companies. In fact, it is sometimes, for other companies, a very unstable asset whose value can go to zero quickly. And uh, making that an important part of workers' uh, total assets in the world is something that the workers themselves uh, would like to contract out of. And and this, to understand how we do things currently, you always want to step back and think, uh, if you started at one place, what would people contract into? And in general, the, uh, people try to contract the risks over to some people who feel that they can afford to deal with the risks and um, the uh, burdens of management. Everyone likes to think, oh, I'd like to help get to make decisions. But in practice, a lot of people would rather have a steady income than they uh, and have it be a little bit higher than have a voice in management, but a lower income. So I, I'm imagining if I'm a corporate raider and I want to put together a, a group of shareholders that would take over a company and to make some changes that uh, the current board doesn't really see as as valuable does that negate that kind of strategy among shareholders to try to take over a company and uh, force changes that the company might otherwise not want to make? It probably influences that. And let me try to spell it out because it's not necessarily straightforward. Currently, under our system in which directors have an obligation to maximize shareholder value, uh, it's very unclear the extent to which they actually do that. They, a lot of what directors do probably can't be explained very well in terms of maximizing every last penny of share. You know, the, 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 they're in it for a bunch of different reasons, including feeling good and, in fact, managing stakeholders. However, uh, occasionally push comes to shove and there is the chance of they're really getting sued seriously for not doing that. And one of these times is when a corporate raider comes along and says, look, I can offer you 30% more than what your stock is worth. However, uh, this is premised on my coming in, getting in to manage it, you know, closing down two operations that have been losing money, you know, firing half of you managers because uh, I think I can do it with fewer people. Lots of disruptive things that boards and incumbent managers often dislike. Well, currently, the shareholder maximization criterion, whatever else it isn't all that good at doing, does force them to take seriously an offer for the company that would give the stockholders a lot more money. And the Elizabeth Warren plan appears to be very nicely designed to take that pressure off them because they would be able to point to the law and say, oh, Mr. Corporate Raider, yes, we know that you would make our shareholders much richer, but oh, it would be disruptive for this community, it would be disruptive for that constituency, it would be disruptive for this third group of stakeholders, and so we are saying no. Now, that's exactly the answer that the incumbent management often wants to hear because they want to keep their jobs, um, keep their, um, you know, all the perks and all of the 
uh, incumbency basically never be thrown out. They, you know, they'd love to never be thrown out, even if they're not doing a very good job. But um, that, so that's to me the most predictable single result of uh, where the Warren plan would uh, run into uh, practical Wall Street action is that it would be much harder to dislodge incumbent managements because they could wave around all this language about stakeholders. How does she uh, propose to break down uh, these companies? Uh, there is a dividing line, obviously, between uh, some companies would be subject to this required go to Washington to seek this particular charter, uh, and others would not. Where's the dividing line? She draws it at $1 billion. Now, I don't spend very much time on that because I think, first, this is a negotiating point. Secondly, depending on how they define it, you know, you can have a grocery store with a billion dollars in sales. It's not really all that big. Or you can say it's got to have a billion dollars in stock market value, and then it can really have no value at all, <laughs> except for the craziness of investors. And But but anyway, so somewhere along the line, there's going to be a, a billion dollars. I would expect that to be a starting point and um, indeed, one of the things to worry about with the Warren plans is that whatever would be the first enacted version would not be the last enacted version, that businesses that politicians were interested in regulating might be brought in even though they were smaller at a second point. Because uh, once the federal government has started uh, doing its own um, uh, direct regulation of corporate structures, there's going to be a lot of demands for it ex to expand that in various directions. How does this affect companies' decisions? I mean, if this plan were implemented, how would you view that this might affect a company's decision to go public in the first place? Because if, if it's we're just talking about publicly traded companies, it would seem uh, at first blush to encourage companies to say, boy, we're, we're gonna, really going to have to make a lot of changes. We won't be as nimble. We won't be able to compete as well if we decide to go public. Yeah. There's already a lot of disincentives to go public through SEC regulation, through uh, the possibility of, of uh, securities litigation, this would add uh, some important new disincentives to becoming a publicly held company. Uh, Family-owned business can become very large, but it's easier for them to structure themselves, uh, even if there's a numerical threshold to structure themselves. They don't look like a billion-dollar company. Oh, well, you know, Cousin Sue has a 1% stake of this, so it's not the same company. Um, so family companies will continue to, and I haven't looked at the details, but most likely they will have a bunch of options that um, companies that are right out there uh, as publicly traded ones won't. What is co-determination? Co-determination is a system under which uh, workers are granted as part of corporate law uh, a uh, now, ongoing role in the management of companies. And if you look at Germany, the best known place that pioneered this, you have combination of so-called works councils. That's not part of the Elizabeth uh, Warren thing, but it's like local committees. And employee representation on boards. And she has said that she would like at least, I believe, 40% of the representation of corporate boards to represent the workforces. Now, uh, people's reaction often to this is, oh, well, Germany does this and Germany hasn't gone out of business and it has a lot of successful uh, companies. Uh, what's so wrong with it? And economists have spent decades looking at the question of, all right, what are the effects uh, on this? Uh, how does it make Germany um, a somewhat different economy? Uh, it's known as a high-wage economy, but it's also got uh, various economic problems of its own. And what they've found is... To begin with, um, it works for some types of businesses better than for others. And the law even recognizes that uh, you can't necessarily 
have a financial institution and and a, a manufacturer uh, and answer to the same form. But what it does in particular, workers are very risk averse, uh, and they are also. Uh, inclined to put the interests of current incumbent workers over potential future workers who have not been hired yet, who of course don't have a voice. So that leads to a couple of changes in business strategy. Uh, it tends to work reasonably well for companies and uh, specialty manufacturing, which Germany does so extremely well, happens to be one of these industries where uh, you can anticipate that people will still want to buy your products after a couple of economic cycles have gone by. Um, if if you are in a mature line of business that will probably still uh, be around in a while, that's uh, what workers want out of co-determination typically is to make sure that the job is still there when they retire. On the other hand, Germany is really, really bad at uh, for the size and sophistication and education of its economy. It's very bad at generating world-changing startups that do something completely different. Uh, Silicon Valley is where it is. Um, and it's not in Germany. And th uh, one reason is that uh, it's much harder to get uh, the German model uh, with its conservatism and with its, um, you know, most important outcome in, in often for, for, for many of the participants being, will my job still be here in 30 years? It's hard to get that to take risks. It's also hard to get that to capitalize itself in certain ways that maybe unwelcome for short-term pay, but lead to a greater possibility of an enormous success down the road. The corporation of today looks very different uh, than it did at our founding, and a whole lot of that changed in the, in the 19th century. Is this a push to get back to a time in which corporations had to be granted a specific charter before the democratization of the, the process of issuing uh, corporate licenses. That history is very interesting because, as you say, the process uh, at the start of the 19th century was indeed very politicized. You had to get a charter, not just for uh, after the railroads began, but uh, or canals or other things, but you had to get a charter in general for uh, heavily. Um, capitalized uh, enterprises, and that meant going, playing politics in a state legislature. It meant that politics was um, a big source of corruption in the permission getting, and that was something that was cured in the view of most historians of corporate law by so-called general incorporation statutes, which allowed anyone, without having to go ask a please or a pretty please to their legislature, uh, if you've got certain things in place, a certain kind of board of directors and certain bonding perhaps against certain risks, uh, uh, certain capital stock, you can just go out and do it as a matter of right. And once that broke through, the politicians did not have to be, and couldn't be even if they want, as wanted to be, couldn't be as involved in the launch of local corporations in their states. And that was a uh, tremendous advance for the efficiency of the uh, uh, American and other countries too, which were doing the same thing. Now, it ties in with something that I had See, is it's a bit of a fever dream of the left, and yet you you can't read very much uh, in left wing magazines without running into this, which is the idea of the corporate death penalty. Uh, it often ties in with the idea that there ought to be one chartering agency at the federal government for corporations, and then they said, then we can have the corporate death penalty, and you begin imagining some oil company or some pharmaceutical company or some bank that has done a bunch of awful things, or at least is believed to, you know, by the populace to have done a bunch of awful things, yank its charter, make it go out of business now. 
this ought to be only a question that leads on to other questions like, wait a minute, who gets the billion dollars worth of assets? You know, is it all refunded in checks to the stockholders or does the government take it over without compensation or uh, can they pass it on to some uh, other group of managers that keeps the headquarters and everything else operating just the way it was before, in which case, you know, maybe they're just playing a shell game and nothing has happened. The, these questions are not so often answered, but they love that idea of the corporate death penalty. And it's one of several issues where, you know, her proposals are likely to play very well to populist dislike of the corporation. And yet it's going to be interesting and important to pin down what is intended. Uh, if she's going to have corporate chartering, is it going to be discretionary corporate chartering that they can yank for misbehavior? I'll bet a lot of her supporters want to hear that, uh, but uh, investors certainly don't. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes, Google Podcasts, and when you think about it, ask Alexa to play the Cato Daily Podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>